0: Hello there. Welcome to this episode of Bridging the Gaps. I'm your host, Dr. Vasim Akhtar. Today, I'm joined by Chris Impey, a university distinguished professor of astronomy at the University of Arizona. He has made significant contributions to the fields of observational cosmology, astrophysics, particularly in the area of exoplanet research. His expertise and passion for the subject have led to many publications and appearances in documentaries, news outlets, and popular science programs. Today, we are going to discuss his new book, Worlds Without End, Exoplanets, Habitability, and the Future of Humanity. Chris, thank you very much for joining me and welcome to Bridging the Gaps.
1: Yes, very pleased to be with you.
0: Chris, the idea of exoplanets, planets beyond our solar system, has been speculated by many thinkers throughout history. Giordano Bruno was a a 16th century Italian philosopher and astronomer who suggested the possibility of other planets orbiting other stars. Tell us about these early speculations about the existence of exoplanets that you discuss uh, at the beginning of the book.
1: Sure, so it does have a long history. I mean, you go back to the ancient Greeks, actually, and there there were divergent views. There were a couple of Greek philosophers who speculated that the earth was not the only world or planet with life. Unfortunately, Aristotle was the dominant uh, intellect of the age, and he said there can only be one world: the earth, earth, center of the universe, and end of story. So that sort of squashed some early speculation. Uh, Bruno's a good example you bring up because uh, he paid with his life, of course, for having radical views. Now, to be truthful, historically, I don't think he was uh, burned at the stake for his astronomical views. Were, he had very heretical ideas about theology and the Catholic Church. I think that's really what got him in trouble.
0: And there were a few other visionaries as well who thought about uh, the existence of uh, planets beyond our solar system.
1: Yes, there were, I mean, but there was no data. So it's it's an sp- interesting thing in science. You know, when you're unbounded by any data, you can say whatever you want. You know, in the modern era, it might be cosmology. People talk about a multiverse, and there's all these parallel universes out there. Well, we have no data, so you're free to speculate. And I think more it was in that vein in the last few centuries until we had real observations. So
0: why did it take us so long to confirm the existence of exoplanets? Talk us through some of the main challenges of finding planets beyond our solar system.
1: Um, the fundamental problem is that a planets only shine by reflected light, and they're very small compared to the stars they orbit. So when you're talking about even the nearest stars, which are hundreds or thousands of trillions of miles away, you're looking for an object, if it's an Earth-like planet, it reflects less than a billionth of the sun's light or the star's light, if it's a sun like the star, a star like the sun. Um, so you're looking for something that's a billion times fainter than its star that appears very close to the star in the sky. And so the star completely washes out the light of the planet. And that was just beyond the technical capabilities of astronomy until the late 20th century, basically.
0: There are two very interesting mechanisms that were adopted by the researchers at that time to detect the existence of exoplanets. Can you
1: give us a little bit uh, on these two? Sure. The, the one that started the game was, and was the initial discovery leading to a Nobel Prize, um, was the Doppler shift. So looking for the tug. These are both indirect techniques. That's important to say. The number of exoplanets that is in a NASA list, if you go online now, is about 5,300. Only a few hundred of those have ever had a direct image made, maybe less than 200. Um, so the vast majority are found by indirect methods. And the first indirect method that succeeded uh, in the initial discovery was the Doppler method. So you, you look at the star, and if the planet orbits the star, it's tugging the star in the center of gravity. is, you know, They both orbit a common center of gravity. The thought experiment is if you looked at the solar system from far off, Uh, The Sun is not sitting stationary with the planets going around it. The Sun is essentially pivoting around its edge, mostly caused by Jupiter. So you're looking for that little reflex motion, as it's called, or that Doppler wobble, which you measure as a Doppler shift. So you're taking a spectrum of the star and inferring the presence of a planet that's tugging the star.
0: And uh, there was a, a second technique also where the dimming of the light was used.
1: Right. So the second technique is called the transit method or maybe the eclipse method. And that was based on the idea. But it only applies when the orbital plane is in the, is, you're looking along the equator, if you like, of the orbital plane. So the planet has to be oriented so that it crosses the face of the star. Uh, and if it does so, uh, then it will dim the star by the ratio of the cross-sectional area of the planet to the star. So for Jupiter, 10 times smaller than the sun, that's 10 squared, so it's 1% dimming. Earth 10 times smaller yet, square that, it's .01 percent. And that's the Doppler me- uh, sorry, that's the Eclipse method. And it was very difficult. It, was, it needed a space telescope, the, the Kepler mission, uh, to really uh, pull that in and make that technique work efficiently.
0: And this nicely brings me to my next question. So Kepler Space Telescope played an important role uh, in finding exoplanets. And uh, now we can say that there are more planets than stars in our galaxy, over 400 billions. This is a large number. T- tell us about the contribution of Kepler Space Telescope in the discovery of exoplanets and taking the science to the next level.
1: Sure. Kepler was Kepler was very important mission. I mean, I would like to go back initially to the the, the Doppler method. And it's important in the history of this subject. The first discovery was 1995, and that was Michel Mayor and Didier Quillot, who won the Nobel Prize a few years ago for that initial discovery. But this was a difficult field. It's called the graveyard of astronomers because there were many claims of exoplanets in the 60s, 70s, and 80s that just didn't prove to be correct just because it was such a difficult measurement. So it's fair to say that by the time the Swiss team got on this, people were a little skittish about this kind of research because it was so easy to be wrong. It was such a hard observation. Um, and so there were many false starts. And Kepler is another example of sort of persistence paying off because the Kepler mission um, was pitched to NASA I think four or five times before it was accepted as a mission. So that the idea of Kepler was around for almost a decade before NASA gave the green light, um, and the people involved in it almost gave up. They were taking it was taking so long to get the mission approved, um, but it was a game changer. And the, and the trick that Kepler did, the PI of the Kepler mission, Bill Baruki, he. he famously said, it's the most boring mission ever, because it points at one area of sky, one small patch of sky, and takes a picture of it every six minutes and does that for five years. It's pretty boring. But that's the key to finding these transits. You've got to look deep. You've got to make to take data very frequently to find short orbits, long orbits, and so on. And you've got to use the multiple observations to pound down the noise and and make your detections. So Kepler was a a mission built to just do one thing, but to do it exquisitely well, unlike the Hubble Space Telescope, which, of course, does many things and has five instruments and does all kinds of science. As you mentioned that the two main
0: methods that we use to detect exoplanets, they are indirect methods. But I think that the attempts are being made now to take a photograph of uh, these exoplanets. And there is one image in your book that I was looking at where you have a star in the middle and its light is covered and then you could see some planets around that star but those are very small just two by two pixel images of those uh, exoplanets.
1: Yeah they're barely there but I mean for many people even for astronomers uh, seeing is believing. It was nice to have actual images of exoplanets so I think the first image of an exoplanet is only about 15 years old Um, so it took a long time Also, it depends on what wavelength you observe. So for imaging exoplanets, you're better off in the infrared to work at long wavelengths because planets, of course, are cooler than the stars, and they emit a lot of infrared radiation. So the contrast between the planet and the star is better when you go in the infrared. Also, you're only preferentially going to find the exoplanets that are quite far from their stars. So initially, you're just going to find the big Jupiter-type planets that are on, on long orbits. Uh, you're not going to be able to find Earth-like planets on Earth-like orbits, and, and those have not been imaged by any telescope yet.
0: Perhaps one of the most amazing aspects of these exoplanets is the diversity of their characteristics in terms of their size, composition, orbital
1: characteristics. We are finding all different sorts of exoplanets, Chris. Sure, and it's an interesting situation in science. When you have one thing to study, you, and you know it very well, our solar system, you tend to think it must be typical. I mean, that's the Copernican principle, that we don't live in a special part of the universe. And so we wondered before finding exoplanets, is our solar system architecture typical? And the answer may be that it isn't. The answer may be that, that it's not typical. For example, the most common exoplanet in the galaxy, and I presume the universe, is a super-Earth, a, a planet that's two or three times Uh, bigger than the earth and five or eight times more massive. We don't have a super earth in our solar system. We have Venus and earth, which are almost twins. And then you jump up factor of eight or nine to Neptune and Uranus. So we would never have anticipated super earths if we just looked at our solar system. And yet they're the most abundant type of exoplanet. And there've been a number of surprises. And as you say, the diversity um, planet, exoplanets that are have an enormous amount of water and ice, far more than the Earth. We think of the Earth as a water world, the pale blue dot, but it has much less water than many of the worlds that are being found. There are there are exoplanets that are almost made purely of metals. There are some that seem to be almost purely made of carbon. There's some bizarre chemistries out there. Um, so it's pretty it's pretty fun for the people who do work in this field. It's exciting because what you studied in school, the solar system, does not prepare you for what's out there.
0: And there are exoplanets more massive than Jupiter that race around their stars in just a few days.
1: Yes. And that ties back to the first discovery um, in 1995. because, And it's an interesting story because the people who found it um, were not really looking for exoplanets. The team, the Swiss team, um, they were studying binary stars. So they were looking at uh, stars that orbit each other on tight orbits every every few days in orbit or a week or something. And so they were taking rapid observations and they studied binary stars. And one of the objects in their catalog was a binary star where the companion was very dim and, and was invisible, but they still thought it was a binary star. Well, it turned out to be 51 Peg, so it was a half-Jupiter mass exoplanet whizzing around its sun-like star every four days. That's pretty amazing, because remember, Jupiter takes 12 years to go around the Sun. So here's something almost Jupiter's mass, that's four days, and Mercury is three months to go around the Sun, our closest planet. So again, nothing would prepare you for the bizarre nature of even the first exoplanet discovered. Chris, you have
0: listed a variety of characteristics uh, of these exoplanets that we are finding. Which ones
1: surprise you the most? Well, I think the, the abundance of super-Earths is very interesting to me because um, we want to know what's habitable and what might host life, and we think Earth-like planets are the, are the gold standard for that. But that's not necessarily true. Arguments have been made that the Earth is not the best of all possible worlds, as to quote Leibniz. And so um, super-Earths could well be as habitable or more habitable, more prone to life and biology than the Earth, and there's tons of them. So that's been a big surprise. Another surprise, which is still at the cutting edge of the research, so we don't have really good numbers yet, is there's a speculation that there are many uh, planets floating three, freely through space because they got tossed out of their solar systems early on as there are planets attached to stars. That's, they're called rogue planets um, in some circles. And that's amazingly surprising because we thought planets are always attached to stars. And now to learn that there may be more planets that are orphans than are planets with stars, that's amazing. They're very hard to detect, of course, because there's no the indirect techniques, of course, don't work because there's no star to tug on and there's no star to cross the face of. So you have to use lensing, basically microlensing method to find them.
0: Have we found these? rogue planets or it's just a theoretical concept that is becoming more clear and clear that we would find them one day
1: it's not they have now been found but only in the last few years so the, the the expectation was set by theory by simulations basically whenever you you use a computer to simulate the formation of a solar system you pretty much always see planets tossed out in the early the early phase is very cha- chaotic when the planets are being assembled from the smaller pieces of rock and even there's an argument that the our solar system originally had a fifth terrestrial planet. Uh, that got tossed out early, and then we ended up with just four. So in these simulations, that's where you get an expectation that there could be as many uh, orphan planets as planets captured by stars. And in the last three or four years, there's three or four studies that have now started to find them, dozens at a time. There's one that found over a hundred. So they definitely exist. Uh, The extrapolation of how many there truly are, that's probably an unreliable number yet. But there's a lot of them, clearly.
0: But Chris, how do they operate in space? Are they usually stationary somewhere? Are they randomly moving around? And maybe some gravitational pull brings them on this side and then on another side? How does it work?
1: I mean, once a planet has been ejected from its solar system, it's just floating through interstellar space. And it's, its space is so large compared to the distance between stars and the size of solar systems, it's unlikely to encounter another star. It's unlikely to become adopted by another star. That's a very unlikely. So it's just going to be an orphan forever. And the interesting thing is, you might imagine, well, that's not very interesting for life because it's a star without a, a planet without a star. And the sun is the life giving star that gives biology life. But If you combine that with the super-Earth idea, super-Earths are going to be these orphan planets too, maybe the the biggest number. Now super-Earth can hold, it has more gravity, has more geological activity and heating, and it can hold a thick atmosphere. So it can be a self-contained ecosystem because you'll have radioactive heating from the interior and you'll have a sort of pressure from the atmosphere. So you don't need a star to have biology. And of course, there's biology on the Earth that doesn't depend on sunlight. So we know you don't need a star for biology. And so these planets could be living planets too, floating through the depths of interstellar space.
0: Chris, this is perhaps an amazing point that you, that you are sharing at this conversation, that if some of these rogue planets are, super Earth-sized rogue planets, there is a possibility that they can sustain life without uh, any
1: need of a star or something. Sure, and it's more than that. The sun is gonna die in five billion years. So whatever happens on the Earth, and actually the biosphere will be toasted long before the sun becomes a red giant because the sun will get hotter as it uses its fuel. And so in about half a billion years, the biosphere will be, the oceans will boil, and I don't think life on Earth will survive. But these rogue planets, they're not tied to the lifetime of a star. They could be eternal biological worlds for hundreds of billions of years rather than the 10 billion or a few billion you get for a star. So that's yet another reason why they're, they could be extraordinary.
0: This is fascinating. Your book covers a wide range of topics related to exoplanets, including their habitability. Let us discuss what makes a planet habitable and how should we look for exoplanets that can support life.
1: It's a tricky concept. So there's a sort of simplistic version of habitability that astronomers have used just for want of anything else, just to be on the same page. And that just says, what is the distance from your star, the star you orbit, where water would be liquid on the surface of a terrestrial a rocky planet? Um, so that's a simple definition. Uh, it's, it's immediately complicated by the fact that a planet will have an atmosphere, not just be a naked rock. And they, the atmosphere will change. The, the heating of a carbon dioxide-rich atmosphere will cl- create an extra heating effect. So you, you need to know the atmosphere to even calculate the habitability. And in the end, you try and put a series of factors in play, the mass of the planet, the likelihood for geological activity, because biologists have told us that they think the geological activity and the dynamism of the earth and in the interior and in the oceans and the chemistry was important in facilitating life so if you have a very small planet it has no geological activity mars is almost geologically dead and it may well be nearly dead biologically too so that's another habitability criterion as it's a sort of secondary one but the biggest problem with habitability is it's all reference to life on Earth. And how do we know that this one example of biology is the only type of biology there is in this wild, crazy, diverse universe? And that's a very difficult question to answer. So in the end, you, you look for the thing you know best, but the danger is you're missing something very exciting and different and wildly different. And you might not even know how to recognize or detect it is the problem.
0: Now, these are theoretical models that inform us that how a planet could be habitable uh, and can sustain life. But when we are searching for these exoplanets and when we are trying to study these exoplanets, how do we look for signs of life on these exoplanets?
1: Right, so that's sort of where the frontier of the field is. So Once you have over 5,000 exoplanets, finding 100 more is not that exciting. I mean, it is to people doing it, but to everyone else, it's not so exciting. And, and remember, with these indirect methods, they only really give you very simple information. The Doppler method gives you uh, the mass of the planet, and then you get its orbit, and so its temperature. Uh, the, the transit or eclipse method gives you the size of the planet and its orbit and so it's temperature. If you get both of those techniques, which has been done for three or 400 exoplanets, which you have a mass and a size, you can get a density. And that will tell you whether it's a rocky planet or a gas giant like Jupiter. And so we have that kind of information, but that's very simplistic. These are just a couple of numbers for each planet. They don't tell you much of anything. And so to go to the next level, you need to know about the atmosphere of the planet, uh, and that's a much more challenging observation. Basically, you have to use these transit techniques, and you, when the star is transited by the planet, the starlight filters through the atmosphere uh, before it comes to us. And when that starlight filters through the atmosphere of the exoplanet, uh, absorption occurs at elements or molecules that are in the atmosphere. And so, it makes a marker of the chemical composition of the atmosphere. So, that's the basic experiment that people are trying to do and it's very difficult and it's been done I think only for about seven or eight exoplanets so far and they're not earth-like they're just Jupiter size the biggest ones the easiest ones to do but that's sort of where the future lies because the the goal is to detect what are called biomarkers in the atmospheres of any exoplanet hopefully an earth-like one or a super earth Uh, and a biomarker is an indication of biology nitrogen is the main component of our atmosphere it's not really indicating biology but oxygen is because the oxygen we breathe one part in five of the air was put there by microbes three billion years ago two billion years ago so the reversing the logic if you see oxygen or ozone its cousin in the atmosphere of an exoplanet it's a pretty good bet that there are microbes on that planet and that's the kind of experiment people are trying to do now
0: And Chris, as our uh, instruments keep improving, our telescopes and our other uh, instruments are getting better and better. Do you think that the same technique might give us better results a couple of years down the line?
1: Uh, Definitely. I mean, as wonderful as Kepler was, it was only a small, it was a small one meter telescope. It's not in the top 80 largest telescopes in the world, but it's in space, which helps. Um, So the, the cutting edge of, biomarkers of looking for life through the alteration of an atmosphere of an exoplanet is going to happen a little bit with james webb space telescope so james webb is doing this experiment the problem with james webb isn't it's a wonderful telescope performing very well but it was built and it was designed before exoplanets were even discovered that's how long it was delayed before it got launched and so it's not optimized for this experiment unfortunately and so it will do it but it's very difficult painful and slow So I think James Webb will only be able to study six, eight, maybe 10 targets in the next three or four years. What people really think will break open this game and this work is the next set of large ground-based telescopes, which all have instruments that are going to be designed to do this experiment. And those are the three huge telescopes under construction. All are under construction. So we in Arizona are partners in the Giant Magellan Telescope. It's a a 22-and-a-half-meter mirror. Ah, uh, combined mirrors, seven individual mirrors down in Chile. The site is already under construction. Uh, the Californians and Caltech have the thirty-meter telescope, which is problems because it was destined for Mauna Kea, and there's there's obstacles with the native Hawaiians who don't necessarily want it there. So it's sort of stalled right now. Um, and then the probably the three of the three, the one that will be finished and taking data first is the European project, the Extremely Large Telescope. It's also the biggest. It's about 39 meters. But all those three telescopes almost have as their killer app the search for life through the atmospheres of exoplanets and and that sort of spectroscopic experiment I described.
0: And Chris, this nicely brings us to my next question, a very bold statement that you Seem to be making in this book is, and I'm very keen to dig deep on this that first detection of life beyond Earth is likely within the next five years.
1: Yes, and that's it's really uh, keyed by those three telescopes because they will sh- they should all be taking data within f- maybe five or six years and they're going to jump on this experiment and put a lot of time into it. Maybe James Webb will get there first um, if they're lucky and they get lucky with their targets, but we don't know. Um, You know, the other, the competing way we might find life beyond Earth first is in the solar system, because we know there are places that could have biology. Underground on Mars, uh, Titan, Europa, Enceladus, you know, there are a dozen locations in the solar system, mostly in the outer solar system, where there's liquid water and energy and carbon-rich material, all the things you need for life. But they're all a billion or more miles away, To make it design a mission and send it there takes a decade. And so, you know, that is is exciting work, but it's slow. It's not probably going to beat the ground-based telescope. So I do think life will be found on another star system before it's found elsewhere in our solar system.
0: And uh, obviously, to make this statement, you are putting a timeline on that. But if we look at the other part of this statement, it means that your view is that life exists out there.
1: Right. That's exactly right. So good you queried that because I'm making an assumption. So most, most astronomers and most astrobiologists are compelled by the fact that the ingredients for life are widespread in the universe. I mean, carbon, nitrogen, and oxygen, the biogenic elements, they exist through time and space. We've seen water molecules 13 billion light years away in galaxies that are very young. So water is also a common ingredient. So all the ingredients are there. The table is set for life in the universe. Um, So that's one thing. And then the number of habitable locations is enormous. We estimate 10 to 20 billion habitable worlds in in just our galaxy. And then you can multiply, if you like, by 100 billion for the number in the universe. And with that number of planets where there's a lot of time also. There's the real estate of time as well as of physical space. You know, you have to imagine that biology is extremely a flukish event for there not to be life on some fraction of those. Um, and, and that's why astronomers are sanguine that it is there to be detected.
0: But at this moment, it's a, it's a projection of probabilities that it exists. So far, we have not found any other evidence or even signs that can strengthen this statement or this um, this expectation?
1: No, that, that's right. And it's important to be, you know, it's important not to get lightheaded when you're a scientist. You should always be driven by data. And we have no data. As we speak, there's life on one place in the universe, this planet. That's what we know. Um, so the, you know, probabilistic arguments or expectations um, are, are, are only good They're only good for designing an experiment to go and find the answer. So it's an exciting part of the subject because we're now on the verge of being able to do a much more refined experiment than just finding a bunch of new exoplanets to actually inspect their properties, their chemistry of their atmospheres. Um, But even that is as far as we can go. You might say, well, why can we, if we can image exoplanets, why can't we take pictures of them and see if they have oceans and continents and maybe there's constructions by civilizations that live on those planets, it's just incredibly hard. If you're very far from the Earth, we're not that impressive. Our biggest constructions, the Great Wall of China, the whatever we built on the planet are not impressive. You'd never see them from far away. Even the things we do to mess up the planet, we've increased carbon dioxide in the atmosphere by 30% in a few decades. It's causing us huge problems. But carbon dioxide is a trace ingredient of our atmosphere. And increasing it by 30% when you're looking at Earth from far off, you'd be, you'd be hard-pressed to detect it. So it's interesting how challenging it is to find evidence of even technological or intelligent life from far away.
0: Obviously, the other challenge is the scale of time also, because it is possible that life might have existed somewhere else and that civilization might have uh, long gone now. So that other challenge also is there uh, when we are looking for life and the huge, huge time scale that we are dealing with here.
1: Sure. One of the interesting things about the chemical evolution of the universe is we understand it pretty well. Like I said, we found carbon and water in very far off galaxies, very early in the universe. So you, could, you can say pretty clearly that there could be an Earth clone, a, a, almost a twin of the Earth that formed within a billion years of the Big Bang. And that's 13 billion years ago. And Earth is only four and a half billion years old. So you've got an eight billion year head start on the Earth for biology. That's an unimaginable head start. Like who knows what life could do if it had that long to evolve. And that's else, or a lot of places could have that realist, that uh, advanced time for evolution. I mean, the sobering thought is that life doesn't always persist, that the fate, you know, there's been hundreds of millions of species on Earth, and the fate of all of them is to go extinct. Your, your average is five, 10 million years for a species. I doubt we'll get that long as humans. But um, so life is, you know, ephemeral, it doesn't last forever. Maybe the planet, maybe the civilizations destroy themselves, maybe the planet becomes uninhabitable and the creatures can't go anywhere else. So there's life coming and going throughout the universe, but there's an awful lot of time for interesting things to have happened elsewhere.
0: As now we know that there are exoplanets out there and we know that there are perhaps earth-like planets and there are planets that has oceans. So the next curiosity is to attempt to get there. You talk about that in the book—that how we can build spaceships, our technologies to actually plan to one day travel to those exoplanets. Talk to us about the space exploration and the technologies and the approaches that we need to uh, get to those exoplanets or even attempt to get to those planets.
1: Yeah, it's just made incredibly challenging by the vastness of space. So, like I said, the nearest. You know the Proxima Centauri, a nearest star system, just under four light years away, uh, could well have Earth-like planets. It could well have l- habitable, living planets, but it's uh, it's still thirty or forty trillion miles away, and so getting there is is beyond any technology we have, even on the horizon. Uh, as impressive as what Elon Musk and Jeff Bezos are doing, they're just using cousins, refined cousins of the Atlas. And Soyuz rockets that launched the space program 70 years ago. They're chemical fuel, they're very inefficient. And we're not going to get outside the solar system with current rocket technology. The, the project that gives you a sense of how it might work, but not for people, but for robots or small probes, is Breakthrough Starshot, which is a project funded by Yuri Melner, Russian industrialist and billionaire. He put $100 million on the table and challenged scientists and engineers. To develop the technology to send nanobots, you know, little one gram um, uh, satellites with sensors on them, to the nearest star system and then use those sensors to see what's there, take images, sniff the atmosphere, look for life. Um, and it's a generational project because you basically use incredibly powerful lasers and you shine them on solar sails attached to the nanobots and accelerate them to 5% of the speed of light. And it's four light years divided, times 20 is 80 years, so it's going to take 80 years to get them there. It's a long time, but it's not as bad as it would be if you had to send people. And so that's a visionary project that has some funding, and it has enormous technical challenges, but they seem to be working through them, to actually inspect the nearest star system for Earth-like planets and life. The, the issue of sending people is simply, the laws of physics are, are very brutally set against accelerating Humans or any spacecraft containing humans with mass of a ton or something like that to a 5% of the speed of light That's more energy than the world produces in a few years I think just to send one person mass to 5% or 10% of the speed of light So it's just not going to happen. So the wild card and the technology we need is the ability to Suspended animation to take humans down into a weight state and then they just can sleep or go into a dormant state while the journey may take centuries or millennia, and then they would get reanimated or woken up at the destination. That's the way it could potentially happen. But we are really talking century or more away, I think. Do you think that this is our destiny? Or we should consider it our
0: destiny, that we should prepare ourselves to explore exoplanets, prepare ourselves uh,
1: to embark on these interstellar journeys? There's sort of two aspects to this. Um, the the more gloomy one is that we do it because we have to leave because we can't take care of the earth. And, and that would be a very bad outcome. It's so hard to leave the earth and go anywhere else, Mars, even the moon, and certainly for large numbers of people that we're just far better off and it's far cheaper and easier even to stop the planet from degrading and just taking care of our own planet. So if we don't, need to leave or have to leave for that reason, Um, the reason to go would be the visionary reason of exploration. You know, the humans left Africa 50,000 years ago and moved all around the planet in an amazingly short period of time, just hundreds of generations, all the way from Africa down through the Americas to Patagonia, through Asia, incredible exploration. Not for food, but just apparently because humans like to explore. And so going into space is an extension of that uh, that itch that we have to explore. So some people are going to do it. We already know who they are in the present society. They're the Elon Musks and the Jeff Bezoses of the world. But there's always going to be explorers who will do it just when the technology is available to them just because they want to. And maybe they do have some utopian idea that eventually humans will spread and develop new societies and new ways of living on other worlds.
0: There is a technological side of uh,
1: preparing for uh, interstellar journeys,
0: but there is another aspect also, and that is ethical aspect. When we are ready to explore these new alien worlds, we should be careful that uh, What would be the impact of us visiting there or uh, uh, us sending the probes there? So how would you balance this, our desire for exploration and the need for making sure that we don't have undesirable impact on these alien worlds?
1: Well, as you can imagine, there's a range of opinion. I mean, if we take the solar system and NASA as the example, NASA are very conservative. They're very cautious. They have protocols to sterilize spacecraft when they go to Mars to clean up after themselves, not leave debris, and not seed the surface inadvertently with microbes. So NASA takes planetary protection, our planet, if we bring samples back, and other planets, if we travel there, very seriously. But, you know, in the commercial world, there's no such restraint. There's no legal binding framework for what you do when you're off Earth. And if you just follow the dictates of red meat capitalism, then people are going to, you know, they're going to want to make money with this somehow. And their conservation or protection of the environment, it may just be secondary to them. They may not care about it. Or they may just think there's so much real estate out there. You know, why worry?
0: Interesting. Uh, now, you also touch upon this point in the book that uh, when we are looking at uh, these exoplanets and we are trying to study them, Maybe it's not the exoplanet that is more attractive in terms of finding life or in terms of uh, going and living there. Maybe these are the moons of these exoplanets that are better candidates. Is this coming from what we are seeing in our our own solar system, that there are moons of some planets that are very interesting uh, in terms of the possibility of harboring life or there is another reason for that?
1: Yeah, no, that's the reason. And, and it goes back to the idea of the habitable zone. So there's something called the cryogenic biosphere, which is the, the biosphere that's far beyond a star when it's very cold. It's frigid regions of an outer solar system. And, you know, so the Earth is the only classically habitable planet at the right distance from the sun for liquid water. But once you have a planet that's covered with a cap of rock and ice and has interior heating, you can have liquid water. Or you can just have a very strange liquid like on Titan, which is ethane and methane, where have very low melting, freezing point. So yes, there are very fascinating worlds in the outer solar system that could be habitable. And the the simple answer to the question, well, can we find those elsewhere? Is no, we have not found one exomoon yet. It's extremely challenging to do that because remember, these now are small worlds. Um, Enceladus, which also has the ingredients for life, is a very small moon. There's no way we could detect that. We have trouble detecting anything smaller than an Earth, and these moons are far smaller than the Earth. So these are just beyond the pale for the detection methods so far. There's some very indirect and interesting hints of finding exomoons, but nothing confirmed. It's one of those things we're not sure of. But we know they're there, and if the solar system is typical again, there could be many habitable spots in outer solar systems for every classically habitable planet like the Earth.
0: Chris, we are discussing your book, Worlds Without End, Exoplanets, Habitability, and the Future of Humanity. We have touched upon a number of topics that you discuss in this book. Obviously, there is much more in the book. However, is there anything else that you think we should touch upon before we close this discussion?
1: Um, The only other thing is is just to remind people that there's there's another uh, strategy for life in the universe, which I talk about but not extensively, which is SETI, the Search for Extraterrestrial Intelligence. So if you're confident that there must be life on many of these habitable worlds, then logically on some fraction of them that life will have progressed to our level of technology, intelligent species, and so on civilization and so why don't you look for those too and we do and it's called seti the search for extraterrestrial intelligence there's no way to estimate the probability of success they've failed for almost 70 years which would be enough to discourage most people Um, but it's it's an interesting little it's like a side bet you place on finding life in the universe because again logically if life is abundant in the universe then why should advanced life be incredibly rare compared to very simple microbial life. We don't know, it could be. It could be that the progression in, in natural selection and in biology from simple cells. And remember, it took a long time on the earth to go from the first simple cells to multicellular organisms. That was over a billion years. And then it took another billion years to get life that was bigger than the head of a pin in the oceans. So it probably wasn't that easy to make that progression if it took billions of years on our planet. And all the big creatures that we are familiar with, plants and animals are in the last 10% of the evolution of life on earth. So maybe it is hard, maybe that stuff is rare, but it doesn't have, it has to be incredibly rare. If you've got 20 billion habitable worlds, think how rare it would have to be for none of those worlds to have not only biology, but advanced forms of life.
0: Chris, I ask this question, uh, usually whenever I'm speaking with an astronomer or astrophysicist, that in case, one day we sweep the entire universe and we come to a conclusion now one possible conclusion is that yes life is out there on many planets many places and it is there okay it's common in the universe and the other outcome could be that no we have now looked everywhere and there is no life out there what would be more allow me to use the word frightening or disappointing our concerning outcome for you?
1: Well, I think it would be disconcerting if we were alone, if, if, because that would mean that what happened on this planet and this part of the universe was a fluke. And that's, very, that's a very strange way to have to think of yourself as a human, as a sentient species, uh, as a fluke. What does that mean about the universe? Um, so that would be a strange outcome and maybe an unlikely one, but who knows? I also think there's actually a third possibility, which relates to the difficulty of defining life more broadly than just our form of biology. Another possibility that astrobiologists and other commentators consider is that life may be strange enough to be unrecognizable. We might not know how to recognize it. And that would include some forms of microbial life, but also some forms of intelligent advanced life. Uh, and I think that's not an implausible supposition. So I think I actually li- of those three, I actually prefer that as the likely scenario.
0: Professor Chris MP, thank you very much for being with me. It has been an absolute pleasure having you on Bridging the Gaps.
1: Yeah, was enjoyed our conversation. Thank you. Thank you, and goodbye.